All right, so regarding triggers, I've already mentioned to you guys, play it forward. Um, you know, focus on the negative aspects of it. Um, I want to talk about the demon in the garden. Um, one of the failures of mental health, including sometimes even Christian mental health, is we will talk about constructs in a vacuum, okay? We will talk about philosophies and, you know, approaches in a vacuum. What do I mean by a vacuum? We will act as if, as I'm counseling this couple, it's me, the couple, and God, okay? And, and we're missing something. We're missing something. Because that couple, in addition to me, in addition to one another and the world, as well as God, there is what I call a fourth element. And so that fourth element we encounter in Genesis chapter 3. And this is why the Bible is not a theoretical, philosophical, you know, this is practical. Guys, our life depends on this book, you know. Um, God has gone through great lengths to help us understand this is how you navigate through this life. Okay, and so when we just let it gather dust, um, let me show you why that is so um, dangerous. I once met a crime scene investigator. And one of the things he talked to me about was how difficult it is to be a crime scene investigator. You see, because based on what it is was stolen, it's that amount of time, the, depending on the value of what was stolen, that's the amount of attention you should pay to that crime scene. You should study it that closely. Well, what was stolen from us in Eden? Eternal bliss. So this is a topic that deserves some very careful attention. The other thing that we see in Eden is it's one of the few places in God's word where you see the devil's attack sort of from beginning to end. So you're going to actually see the blueprint of how he attacks us, all right? And so if we go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. All right, so let's first deal with that word, subtle. Well, so first off, let's talk about who was the serpent. So if we go to Revelations 12, verse 9, it tells us exactly who that serpent was. And that's one of the few places in the Bible where you see all the descriptions of the devil, except Lucifer. It says the devil, Satan, the serpent, that old serpent. So you see all of his um, identities. Um, but, and of course, you see then also a description of the devil in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, all right? If you want to understand who our enemy is, what is it that we are up against? These are crucial texts. In under, isn't it important to know your enemy? Okay, so if we read those two texts, I knew this was going to, um, you know, I wanted to help you guys really be able to appreciate these concepts, so I didn't want to go through too much um, scripture. But if you summarize what we're learning in those texts, it tells us that Lucifer is exceedingly intelligent. Oh, man. You know, we say that all the time, but we don't know what that means. He's unimaginably beautiful. So then why are there all these pictures of demons always depicting him, you know? Like he's this grotesque figure. He is unimaginably beautifully, at least he was. The other thing it tells us in those um, chapters is he is a musical being. Music is going to be an important part of his attack. Okay, it's going to be critical. 
All right? Then the other thing is he is hate-filled. Hates you. Do you understand that? Because you are destined for what he lost. I use that word carefully. God has provided the opportunity for us to be saved. Okay? All right. Now, how brilliant, how brilliant is Lucifer? How brilliant is he? All right. So remember what I talked about, top-down control. So ultimately, this war is against our brain. And his goal is to disrupt top-down control so that there's bottom-up control. Have you ever seen somebody in a full-on rage? Okay, well, that's bottom-up control um, in view. But um, how effective is um, the enemy? And so what I'm going to transition into now is the discussion of food addiction. Um, I remember a friend of mine said he was going to come to my talk. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to talk about marijuana. He goes, yeah, awesome. I'm going to talk about cocaine and alcohol. And, you know, he's like, that's good. Sex. He's like, yeah, that's, that's good. And then I said, food addiction. He's like, what time do you say you're going to talk again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure if I'm going to make it. Anyway, um, so let's talk about food addiction. Calorically binging but nutritionally anorexic. Calorically binging, yet nutritionally anorexic. All right, so prior to this, I asked the question, how brilliant is the devil? So first off, scripture tells us how effective his campaign is. How effective? It said he deceives part of the world, right? In Revelations? He is 100%, well, I want to be careful when I say that, but he said he deceives all the world. So it's hard for us to think, here I am, I'm sitting, I'm an Adventist, I'm in the remnant church. How could I possibly deceive like this? Would you be shopping the way you're shopping if you understood how soon Jesus is about to come? Would you? I can only imagine the angels who are like, dude, I, I don't get it, I don't get it. You're buying new clothing and you know this thing is about to be wrapped up. Explain that to me. You're not buying the salvation of souls. You're, you're, not, you're not in missionary activity. You're expanding the size of a house. That's about to burn. He deceives the whole nation. But for the grace of God, go I. So imagine for a moment you have a general describing his brilliant campaign. Imagine the press conference. And he's explaining it. He's like, you know what? Yeah, it's true. I can't outright go and just kill a human. Um, but we have developed a, 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 a strategy that is so effective, the enemy is going to come and purchase the bullets and install it into their arteries themselves. Now that's brilliance. Now that is brilliant. No, 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 you're not going to have to go chase after them and shoot them. They will come to you. You're going to get rich off their death. Now that is brilliant. And when people try to warn them, well, we'll, we'll make sure they're labeled as weird and, and, and marginal. And, and we'll make sure they're sidelined. He's brilliant, but for the grace of God. So why? What is going on with this? Why do we do that? So that's what I want to talk to you about. What is it that our enemy knows about you? 
All right, so I was assisted somewhat by the book um, The End of Overeating. Um, Dr. David Kessler, former FDA commissioner, reinvented the food label and tackled the so-called tobacco industry. And he talked about some of the science of addiction that I want to share with, a food addiction that I want to share with you. Um, how significant of a problem is this? Catherine Flegel um, noted a worsening trend towards obesity. So she works over at the CDC, and she noticed a finding that she initially thought was actually some sort of mistake. The average size of um, a 28-year-old back, well, someone from 20 to 29-year-old, back in the 1960s, what do you think their average weight was? 140. Huh? So I heard 140, I heard 120. Believe it or not, it was 128. Huh. 128. 1960, so that was 1960. Now in the year 2000, what do you think is the average size of someone between 20 and 29 years old? 157. 157. Brilliant. If I had challenged you to put in place a campaign to get people as a whole their weight to increase, how, do you, how effective do you think your campaign would be? A campaign so tight that he has shifted the average weight from 128 all the way up to 157 pounds. So Dr. Flegel, she initially thought, hey, I've done something wrong. And in like manner, she looked at the average weight of people from 40 to 49. So again, back in uh, the 1960s, the average weight was about 142. Well, by the year 2000, it jumped up to 169. So why? do we overeat? Well, let's look at the food itself. Let's look at the food itself. So you guys know those popular restaurants, and then they talk about things like potato skins, okay? What is the anatomy of a fattening food like that? All right, we gotta get scientific. So we're talking about deep fried skin. That frying process dehydrates it, reduces the water quantity, and it also increases the fat quantity, all right? Then, of course, they hollow it out. What do they scoop on in there? Sour cream, okay? Yet again, fat on top of fat. <laughs> and in between that, what do we have? We have the potatoes, which are what? Carbohydrates. Fat on sugar on fat. And, of course, salt. Buffalo wings, yet again, you know, deep fried. And then, of course, you got that dipping sauce, rich again in carbohydrates and fat. All right, and then like for you coffee drink, please don't be coffee drinkers, but white chocolate mocha frappuccino, what is it that we're really talking about? Fat, sugar, fat. And so what he noted was that foods that have an optimal combination of fat, salt, and sugar tend to be very addictive. They promote eating for pleasure as opposed to hunger. Um, on, a, on, a, on a more hilarious note, God does not trust me with my appetite, apparently, um, because uh, yesterday I had the unfortunate event of, you know, I'd eaten, I'd gotten my plate, I went, I ate, and then, of course, I was like, I feel all right, but I like that, you know, that filled feeling, you know? Um, so I went back to get more, and you should have seen that waiter, man. He's like, no, you can't have no more. <laughs> you know who you're talking to? It's like God put him there. <laughs> 
like, I have orders from above. You can have no more. You have more work to do on your presentation. Now go upstairs to your room. Um, and it worked. You know, I wasn't sleepy or anything. Oh man. I was amazed. Props. Watching, you know, the plates of this afternoon mm. at a health summit. Oh. And the kinds of food, the pile of food here. And this is supposed to be quote unquote good food. Wow. In their defense, I think the folk knew that they couldn't go back for seconds. <laughs> In their defense. Because if you'd have seen my plate, you'd have been ashamed. Because I'm like, you ain't getting me twice. <laughs> so this time, God got creative. Because when I went to get the food, there were no big plates. There were only small plates. <laughs> so I say to the waiter, hey, man, can I get a big plate? They're like, I don't know about that. I was like, wow, Father, you don't trust me. <laughs> so I'm going to be clear today, basically. Um, anyway, so taste bud stimulation results in the secretion of opioid chemicals. All right, so we, you want to know that we in our bodies have natural opioid-like chemicals. And you only understand that when you stub your toe on something and it hurts like crazy, doesn't it? But the, op the endogenous, the inside opiate system is so effective, the pain disappears and you don't even realize it. And it disappears pretty quickly because you have an inside opiate system. Well, these opiates have the power of not just pain relief, they actually mood enhance. Are you starting to see now? They actually mood enhance. So what I just said was there are foods that when you eat them, they drive the production of opiate-like chemicals. Pain relief, mood enhancement. So can you see how you can start to shift from eating because you're hungry to eating for reward? Pleasure. Okay? This is what the enemy knows about you and me, all right? So our good friend, Dr. Josh Woolley, um, up at UC San Francisco, conducted an interesting series of experiments. Step one, what he did was he would expose rats to, say, um, chocolate, right? And then he would mix it with uh, chocolate and bananas and see which one they would choose. So if they were initially exposed to chocolates, guess what they preferred? Chocolate. Bananas. Wake up. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> this isn't intuitive. This isn't intuitive. So they actually, they would choose bananas because they had their fill of chocolate. All right? So now if he exposed them to bananas and then he exposed them to both, guess which one they chose? Bananas. bananas. Wake up, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Bananas. Because they'd had their fill of chocolate. All right, so you get your fill of chocolate, now you want bananas. If you get your fill of bananas, now you want chocolate. All right, so let's just be clear. Then he got interesting. He would expose them to, let's say, bananas, but then he gave them an injection of opiates. All right, so now for you thinkers. And then he would expose them to both. Which would they want? If he exposes them to bananas, gives them a shot of opiates, what do you think they prefer? Bananas. Bananas, okay? If, on the other hand, he exposed them to chocolate, gave them the shot of the opiates, and then exposed them to both, which would they prefer? Chocolate. And what it talks about is the role of opiates driving our food choices. All right? So it was a very, very interesting ex, um, experiment. 
Furthermore, the thing to really underscore is I want you to see why if you are sad, why some people will have a tendency of wanting comfort foods. Okay? Comfort foods. Um, or why people will uh, choose comfort foods. And to just drive home the point of the significant role that opiates play in, um, in, 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 in affecting our food choices, there were other experiments done in which opiate receptors, so the opiate effect was blocked by a medication called naltrexone. Naltrexone blocks the effect of opiates. When the, the effect of opiates was blocked, people would actually reduce their feeding. These animals would reduce their feeding, okay? Again, all I'm underscoring is the role of opiates in driving eating for reward, okay? All right, so now, what is the role of dopamine in all this? What is the role of dopamine? If opiates enhance our mood as well as um, um, relieving our pain, what does dopamine do? Dopamine drives behavior. Remember that from way back when, when we said that. Dopamine will drive behavior. So they would, uh, they would erect these elaborate, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call these things? Um, uh, obstacle courses, right? Um, that would separate um, animals from food. And what they noticed was if they'd been given a shot of dopamine, these guys would do anything to get that food. They were given a shot of dopamine. So dopamine will drive food-seeking behavior. But if, on the other hand, they weren't given a dopamine um, shot, and they would do it even if they weren't hungry, all right? But without dopamine, even if they were hungry, they weren't doing everything they could to get the food, okay? Yet again, it's just highlighting the fact that dopamine will drive behavior for seeking out food, all right? So that's how these two chemicals work. All right. Now, the world is very, very aware of a chemical called serotonin. And um, serotonin deficiency has been connected to increased binging, increased impulsivity and aggression, as well as depression. Okay, so again, reduced serotonin levels has been associated with increased binging, impulsivity and aggression, and depression. Okay, um, now, as to why you know, the serotonin levels will um, reduce, that's a significant question to ask. Because sometimes doctors just want to get you on an antidepressant without checking your diet to understand, are you eating the precursors that are going to lead to the production of the serotonin in the first place? So I could give you all the meds I want. If you're not eating right, um, you're not going to necessarily get the benefit of that medication. And it really underscores the importance for, um, for lifestyle, frankly. All right, for those of you who have an interest in this um, area of food addiction, you are going to hear more and more about the neuroendocrine called neuropeptide Y, okay? The most abundant, widely distributed neuropeptide known. It's the most potent activator of feeding behavior. So there were animals that could be driven to eat even though full. So they will, uh, they will, they will go past being full. Um, it acts at the level of the hypothalamus and and its effects were blocked when a person was given naloxone. Naloxone is very similar to naltrexone, okay? So if you block the ability of opiates to carry out their function, they also noticed that neuropeptide Y could not drive the animal to feed, 
The message to me as a practitioner is the important role naltrexone could potentially play in reducing cravings. We already know that it does that with alcohol, but there may be a role for it also in food addiction. So as a medical practitioner, just some insight there. So the bottom line with problematic eating is when we're eating for reward as opposed to hunger. All right, when we're eating for reward as opposed to hunger. What you're going to see is God designed these wonderful, wonderful practices. Who would, who would prefer a pill of Lipitor versus, you know, some nice healthy, you know, basket of food, uh, of, of, of vegetables or, or fruits, you know, in, in contrast to Lipitor? Here it is. God gave us the medications in a beautiful, you know, time-released package, you know? And, and here we are dooming ourselves to having to depend on medications as opposed to what God originally designed. So I want to show you that what happens is these things get hijacked. So eating, a process that's supposed to feed us, actually gets hijacked to where now it's actually something, we're, we're taking it towards something bad. All right? So what we need to eat for is hunger as opposed to pursuing reward or pursuing comfort. All right, so what is the working definition of addiction? If you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, it's a formal giving over or delivery by sentence of court. Hence, it is surrender or dedication of anyone to a master. Surrender to a master, giving yourself over to a master. You know, just very scary. State of being addicted or given to a habit or pursuit almost puts it in spiritual context, devotion. All right, so just a quick summary on food addiction. Um, and now I'd like to talk to you about sex addiction. I for, believe it or not, there was a picture behind that that I deleted in an effort to be sensitive to um, uh, my colleagues um, who, are, who are recovering from addictions. Um, but whatever the case, I want to talk to you guys about sex addiction. Yet again, in context, I want you to notice that sex came at the end of a building process. Do you guys see that? Yes. Sex came at the end of a beautiful process. It, it, it was the outgrowth. I literally had this question. I had the question um, from a young audience. Um, they asked, what do you do with the sexual energy? Nobody's telling us what to do with this sexual energy. And, you know, it's, a, it's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And what I shared with them was that energy was not accidental. God wants you to channel that energy into building. Into building. Okay, that's good energy to use to overcome obstacles. Remember we talked about that? You know, dopamine driving behavior. Into building a life that culminates in that. So what could be more beautiful than you've actually met this person, um, you've actually understand who this person is, you've actually built this life, accomplished academically, so on and so forth, and then as a culmination of that, you guys commit yourselves formally, not verbally, you know, not making promises, you, you, you bind together formally and then celebrate that formal, so nobody can back out now, <laughs> you know, you celebrate that formal union. Um, with sex. That's, that's the physiology and context. And what you see the devil do is he loves to take God's gifts and take it out of context. Okay? 
somebody asked a question. And so you have the general again, you know, briefing them. Guys, I'm going to take what God gave them, and I'm going to have them destroy themselves with it. This good thing that God gave them, I'm going to have them destroy themselves with it. So David is a 40-year-old head of state whose love for pornography has escalating to sleeping with the wife of one of his subordinates and having him killed before the affair comes to the light of day. Who am I talking about? My goodness. Sure, I'm in a religious crowd. It's, it's so fun to do this in a, in, a, in a secular setting. They're like, oh, no, who's that? <laughs> See them checking the papers, getting on their smartphones. <laughs> All right. So one of the people who, who are a fairly loud voice in the area of um, sexual addiction is none other than Dr. Pat Carnes. That book is actually a, um, a workbook that Pat Carnes has for those struggling with sex addiction. Um, and so, of course, I got some of what I'm going to share with you from his book. All right, so how big of a problem is sex addiction? We're talking roughly about 3 to 6% of Americans suffering from sexual addiction, 5% of the population meeting criteria for sexual compulsivity. But sex is so ubiquitous in our culture. I really feel it for people struggling with this addiction because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So we're talking about like 15 million people that we recognize, that we recognize. Um, addiction um, is termed by Dr. Pat Carnes as an illness of escape, all right? And so sex addiction, basically like all addictions, you want to know that there are basically two components to addiction, all right? Two components. Compulsion. Can you say that with me? Compulsion. And negative consequences. They didn't say that one quite as loud. And negative consequences. Okay, so there are those two components that you're going to see accompanying addictions. A compulsion to do the behavior despite negative consequences. All right, so who is at risk? Um, so those that are isolated, those that are stressed, um, people given the opportunity, those suffering from other addictions, because these addictions tend to occur together. Based on that description, that's almost like everybody in the room, you know, um, with today's culture. 80% um, of individuals who use sexual behavior addictively will tend to be male, um, per the findings of Dr. Carnes and others. And m males, of course, tend to choose physical sexual gratification. I'm going to fast forward through that, given some people present. And females focus more on the emotional aspects of sexuality. Um, so as fathers in the audience, you know, um, please be diligent uh, about showing your children love. Um, being that person, I want to make it so difficult for the guy that tries to compete with me for my daughter. Um, not really, that's not true, but I want to make it clear to her, this is your expectation of what it is you're looking for. You know, I want to make sure that this is a young lady who is confident and so that she is not left in a situation where she's trying to find that assurance um, outside of our home. Um, so this is the power that we have as parents. All right, and so typically um, the addictive use of sex will begin in early teens, peaking between 20 to 40 and gradually declining, says the studies. Um, so there were some faces of addictions. I'm going to speed past that. Um, so you want to know that people will use, you know, serial relationships. Um, a lot of times what these cases um, emphasize is the fact that uh, 
people have a tendency of only coming to treatment when there has been massive, and I do mean um, massive negative consequences, to where their nightlife is now colliding with their day life. Okay? And so that's when people will finally come um, uh, to treatment. All right, so as far as the neurobiology, you guys remember the neurobiology that I discussed before? We talked about the role of the ventral tegmentum, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala. We talked about the prefrontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex. That neurobiology is going to apply here as well. Um, there are some reports that the serotonin system may play a role in the disorder. There are some reports that dopamine excess may actually drive um, sexual compulsivity. So just some things to be aware of. This slide is just for the point that we really want to be careful. This is not the sexual addictions. These are, the sexual, are some of the sexual disorders. That's different. But there was just a point that I wanted to um, um, notice here. With exhibitionism, these are people who derive sexual pleasure from exposing themselves and watching the response. Then you have fetishism, people who they, um, there are different articles, sometimes like women garments, that they derive pleasure from coming in contact with their skin. Then there's fraucherism, so these are people who derive pleasure from people who are, not, from rubbing against people who are non-consenting. I think we're all familiar with pedophilia, you know, the abuse of the, sexual abuse of the underage. And there's sexual masochism, so that they derive pleasure from being abusive and doing shaming practices. And then there are others who derive pleasure, these are sadists, who derive pleasure from being shamed or being um, um, abused. Well, what's interesting is when you look in the DSM-4, what they say is behavior is required before you can get that diagnosis. Okay, so it's not just the thought, the behavior is required before you get the diagnosis. It would almost hint that the thoughts, it sort of minimizes the importance of thoughts, but we all know thoughts lead to actions. So I would be very interested in before it becomes a behavior. I want to know about the thoughts. Um, and so notice how that is in contradiction to Christ's standard. You recall Christ's standard. Matthew 5:27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see that? Christ has a different standard. All right? One of the things that um, Dr. Uh, Carnes um, uh, gave the addiction community, um, discussed regarding sexual addiction was this issue of the addiction cycle the addiction cycle. I want you to notice where it all starts. Can you say that with me? Oh, they're falling off already. Come on, what's some passion, guys? Belief system. Notice where it all starts. Belief system, what you believe. What this underscores is the critical role you play in what is affecting your beliefs. For you parents again, what is the belief you are allowing these children to, to, to consider? Okay? This is where the enemy is going to attack. He's going to attack everywhere in that cycle, but especially here. Because this is, this is where it all begins. So let's talk more about this belief system. What will contribute to a faulty belief system? Absent parents. It doesn't matter why you're absent. It doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter if you are a world-class uh, you know, athlete, doesn't matter if you are uh, clergy, doesn't matter if you are, uh, you know, medical practitioner, you know, doesn't matter if you are a truck driver. All that matters is you are missing. You're missing because the devil is more than deliberate about being present to affect the belief system. Okay? Divorce. Divorce, uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, at least if we divorce, now the kid's not going to be exposed to this harmful environment. Okay, you weren't getting along when you were living together. What's the likelihood you're going to get along better now that you've divorced? So a lot of those times, those battles go into, you know, the divorce, and you're fighting over the kid. The fighting continues, you know, and intensifies in some ways. Um, so just something to be aware. If you can make it work, and this is why we have to live on our knees. The enemy is attacking our relationships. And how does he get us? He dangles. How about that 5,000 square foot home? How about that? How about 3,000 square foot home? You're just going to have to work a little harder. But you guys will be happier. You know? Fine, you'll be missing a little bit more. But so what? You might be a little bit more stressed. You might even get a little sick. But hey, who cares? 5,000 square foot home, beach home. Think about it, trailer. And as we chase those things, there are consequences. Um, so again, uh, of course, mental illness can of course lead to absentee parents. Substance dependence, substance dependence, a great way to knock out parents. Because one of the things that I told you that God gave us the gift of was the gift of time. Was the gift of time. Time is so sobering. When I say my age, 30, I can't even bring myself to say it, 36 years old, 36 years old. It's like, it's not so much that 36 is old, it's just that I can't believe that much time has passed so quickly. It's very orienting. And when I think about the amount of time that goes into thinking about the addictive substance, Pursuing the addictive substance, being under the influence of the addictive substance, recovering from the addictive substance. He has just blown this big old shot in your time. In your time. So substance dependence, something that we definitely want to conquer. Factors contributing to a faulty belief system, trauma. Uh, my good colleague talked about the critical role of protecting our children. You know, how awful it is when parents themselves are the, uh, the um, uh, what do you call this, the uh, proponents or the perpetrators, it's a P word, are the perpetrators um, of trauma. But these are things that will shatter a belief system, shatter a belief system. You want to talk about trust. I was so amazed when he asked us to list what are the values um, that we want in our, um, in our uh, spouses. How many people, how many of us, where did spirituality come in? Did you guys notice that? I had to take a picture of it. It was the, it was the last thing. It was the first thing. Trust. And you heard it from several corners of the room. Trust, trust, trust. Of course, you get that from spirituality. Okay. Trauma leads to this feeling of loneliness, feeling unprotected, non-trusting, feeling inadequate, worthless, less than. Um, the search is on in that person who suffered that for something. They're looking for something dependable. They're looking for something comfortable. And the winner is drugs, alcohol, you name it, sex. And fill in the blank. 
with a host of other addictions. Fill in the blank. Workaholism, hyper-religiosity, uh, shopaholism. You know, how many homes are being devastated by shopaholism? And on and on and on. So of course, you get impaired thinking. So most of the times when people are in that addiction loop, there is denial. I don't have a problem. This is under control. I can control it. I can stop anytime I want. And I'm going to say, that's why I can sympathize with the 12-step community in the importance of embracing, okay, I give up. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. You can see how that's the first step in recovery. Okay? Now, I'm championing, in, encouraging people to say that they're in recovery. But one of the first steps is acknowledging that, hey, all right, let me stop this nonsense of denial. I have a problem. I have a problem. All right. So then, of course, I mentioned preoccupation. So addicts, minds completely engrossed with sex. Everything encountered is a possibility. People become prey. I want you to recall the, the, the tense nature of your courtship. You guys remember when you guys were in love? You know, that was all you could think about. Act like you remember, guys. Come on now, I'm helping you out. <laughs> I mean, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> um, so the pursuit, the hunt, the search, the suspense, that's all. That's the only person you want a phone call from. Everybody else is an annoyance. <laughs> you know? Well, that's how it is with people struggling with an addiction. There's a ritual. There's a term that we will use for the non-process addictions, um, for the non-chemical addictions called process addictions. Because there's an addiction to the process. Okay, so you want to know that for somebody who surfs on the net, um, even, even hearing the dangling of keys can be a trigger. Yes. Okay, and so that's why we have to be so sensitive. Even hearing that can be a trigger. So what were sometimes neutral stimuli become what we call salient. They become significant um, in addiction. Um, and then my good sister talked about uh, marijuana and the problem with marijuana. One of the issues with legalizing drugs, I want you all to be aware of this dynamic. One of the things that makes getting off of cigarettes so difficult is the fact that it is legal. Why is that? Because you can use it with a wider range of activities. Can you see that? Wider a range of activities will actually trigger you because it's ubiquitous. You, could, you, you don't have to hide to use it. With things like heroin, for example, there are only like some specific places where you were using some specific activities. When you legalize it, it's like now there's so many more activities that now will become a trigger that you have to. Um, so there's a whole dynamic that that creates. Um, so just be aware of that. Um, so with the compulsivity, the addict uh, is, is powerless. And the failed attempt to quit leads to the addict feeling despaired, shame, and guilt. And then the failed sobriety causes them um, to fail to honor decisions. And they feel hopeless about gaining victory. A fairly horrible place to be. And that, of course, can lead to despair and hopelessness. And so I had my, my good friend here ask me, um, how significant are these, you know, um, uh, addictions? Is how do you rate crack versus gambling, um, versus sex? You want to understand that a person facing a lot of these guys that sometimes we want to laugh at, who have to stand there with their spouse and talk about the fact that they've been caught in an affair, so on and so forth. 
you know, but for the grace of God, the more those folk don't kill themselves as they realize that their whole life is over. And as opposed to joining the mass media in the, the, the side jokes, we should be praying for those people. Um, so, so it's a serious issue. There are people who've ended their lives over these issues because I didn't, I didn't really want to elaborate on it because the kids are present. But um, when you understand how serial, you know, oh dear, how, 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 how much um, and how many relationships can start, how many lives get impacted, it can be something horrible. Anybody that wants to help me with this feedback, and feel free. All right. Okay, and so each repetition of the loop strengthens the addiction. All right? Um, and so, of course, you get to the unmanageability, and this is usually when they now show up for treatment. So you get broken family lives, broken finances, um, impaired upkeep, and finally now they'll often come into treatment because the spouse um, or somebody is saying, you get treatment or else. Okay, and that's why um, my good friend talked about, you know, codependence and enablers. One of the most helpful things you can do to an addict is hold them accountable. One of the most helpful things you can do is say, get treatment or else, and honor that word. Because that is often what brings people in. And the people who I can sense have sensed that that significant other is not serious, I see the lackadaisical commitment to treatment. But the ones that know their significant other is serious, they come in with a totally different attitude. They're up front in class, you know? No nonsense. The other people, oh, I'm too sick. These other guys, they know, no, she'll follow through. He is not playing with me this time, okay? Um, so addiction cycle and the media. <clears throat> the neuroscientific world is on fire regarding this, this new finding about what's called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons. Um, so the scientist Dr. Rizzolatti um, and Dr. Catania, what they did was they identified the fact that we have circuitry in our brains, these neurons that are called mirror neurons, that when you're looking at something, it's as if you're doing it. Your brain is interpreting it as if you're doing it. Oh, y'all ain't getting me. Okay? Think about the implications of this. I mean, on a more negative sense, you can see why as you're watching murders, it's as if you're committing it yourself. Okay, as, as, as you're watching sexual perversion, it's as if you're participating yourself. The enemy knows why he's bombarding us with this stuff. But on a glorious note, that's the reason why Christ said, if, you, if I be lifted up, yes, amen. if I be lifted up, if we just look at Christ, it's as if we are doing what he's doing. So I can't do it in and of myself, but if I can just look at him. And that's why he blessed us with his word. This notion of mirror neurons. But now think about mirror neurons and think about this addiction cycle now. Think about the high sexual content that our kids and we are looking at nowadays. Think about how that's affecting their belief system. Imagine how it's feeding them and impacting them. Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. The studies have been done, and it shows that the kids that are exposing themselves to more sexualized content are more likely to begin sexual activity earlier. Now that's been documented. Okay? Enemy knows what he's doing, 100%. We, he deceiveth the whole world. 
okay? How does it promote impaired thinking? Um, what's the impact of the mass media? So before I talk to you about the sexual disorder of voyeur, what was the voyeur? They get off by looking at sexual behavior, all right? To people who are unknowing, right? Well, what you see the media doing, and the significance of this is men tend to be more visual. Did you guys know that men are more visual? That's the reason why you do not see, for the most part, um, obese female singers. We don't care how good you can sing. You've got to have a body to go along with it. <laughs> now, women, on the other hand, you guys are more generous because you're more auditory. And so as a result of that, you can take a guy like, um, oh, you can't hear this. Um, oh. You guys get the idea, though, right? The guys are like, so what? The women are like, no, play it more. Play, play a little bit more. You know? Um, because the way to your subconscious is through your auditory system. And the enemy knows that. And so Barry, he's very obese, but his voice works. All right, now I want to bring you all back, OK? Come on back. All right. And so what you see the media doing is it's promoting men to be voyeurs. Okay? It's promoting men to be lookers. And what is it doing to women? It's promoting them to be exhibitionists. Promoting them to be exhibitionists. So what do you see in this slide? You see this gentleman here, he is flashing them, and she is absolutely horrified by this. Absolutely horrified by this. Um, because he's exhibiting, you know, and he's getting off by their response. But who is that woman? That woman is Catherine Zeta-Jones. And so I had these other pictures, but I took out because of my friend, who you see her doing the very thing he was doing in her scantily clad outfits. It's almost like she was getting back at him. Do you see the hypocrisy? So women are being promoted to be voyeurs, and men voyeurs are being exhibitionists, and men are being stimulated or, or encouraged to be voyeurs. It's a marriage made in hell. Do you see that? All right. Impact of technology. Now, thanks to, I remember uh, counseling a, a young man um, who was struggling with uh, uh, sexual addiction. But way back when I was counseling, smartphones weren't as in vogue. So the only place that this gentleman could actually indulge was on his laptop. So we could put together a, a, a plan that would, you know, strategize around that. Now, with the smartphone. And the accessibility of the smartphone, it has so crippled the ability to strategize around it, but for the grace of God. Okay? Um, so now with technology, access is out of control, affordability, anonymity, um, and a lot less accountability. And this is Dr. Weiss, who, uh, um, um, who I'm quoting. Um, so went down to this gentleman's conference in LA, and the things he told me about that I had no idea about um, so now they are, you all are familiar with apps? Mm -hmm. Okay, and so there are these applications on the phone. So first off, there are GPS locators. So believe it or not, there are applications that will inform you where the nearest uh, sexual, uh, you know, uh, potential is, you know, where this other consenting person. Um, horrible. There is a site 
there was a site, and initially I wasn't even going to say the name, but I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Ashley Madison, for married men and women, life is short, have an affair. That is their slogan. Um, this is their mission statement to provide an interactive way for like-minded users to explore whether they wish to meet each other, chat with each other, and or explore extramarital relationships. Now, you'd say, well, what's the impact of this site? And that's why I, I just mentioned it. Um, Three million members internationally. And this was quoted last year, so I'm sure it's gone up by now. May 2009, 679,000 men and women used the service to contact a sexual partner in that single month. 92% of males on the site sign in as married. 60% of females sign in as married. Okay? Teledildonics. Okay? So now it's like they're using these devices from far away. Okay, I'm not even going to go into the details of that. But it brings me right back to Genesis 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. We're getting to that point. So I want to touch on pathological gambling. And I want to stop for a 10-minute break. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.